Okay, mic check, one, two, one, two, one, two. Uh, yeah, let's get it. Okay, so if y'all want to get crazy, we can get crazy. Crazy, 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 crazy. 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 What? Great parade. Red. Who drank my apple juice? I, 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 I like to get a round thoughts to my band, Sexual Chocolate. Play you. What? One game, one on one. For what? Your heart. It was like his dip just... Baby, please. Please. Please, baby, please, baby, 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 please. Yo, you got the juice now, man. And that's the double truth. Roo, roo, roo. What is up, everybody? Welcome, welcome, welcome back to Adventures in Black Cinema, your passports to black film. My name is Desmond Thorne, and I will be your host and your film aficionado for the day. And yes, we are back. We are back after a summer break. It's been a minute since we had a new episode. You know, I had to take a little break over the summer because I started a new job. I am now a film programmer at Nighthawk Cinema in Brooklyn where I have worked for a couple of years at this point. So it's a very, very exciting thing. And we will be hosting live screenings of films that I have talked about on the podcast in the past. And that screening series will be monthly and it will be called Adventures in Black Cinema. So I will keep y'all updated on that. Very, very excited to begin that. And other than that, I mean, this summer has just been filled with so many lessons. I've been doing a lot of what they call inner work. I've been just really dealing with a lot of things that have happened to me and how those things relate to my behavior in the present. And I've been having fun and kicking it with my friends, friends that I haven't seen in a very long time. And also, I think at this point, kind of winding down. You know, the job started in July and, you know, with Miss Delta variant out here running these streets, I have been, you know, kind of finding a balance now between going out a lot, seeing a lot of people, having a lot of fun, and then also taking time to myself to recharge, to regroup, and to find a new way to do some things. You know, I've learned a lot of lessons this summer about the power of asking questions when you don't know what the answer is to something or admitting that you don't know something. It's very, very freeing. And I feel like I've learned a lot of lessons doing this job already that really translate into my life outside of the job and how I operate. So very excited to keep on going along and to keep y'all updated on how things are going. And it was very very kismet in a way that I decided to do this film today because there is a lot in this film that is about dating when you are older, dating when you are past that usual dating age, as they say, because I feel like that is where I'm going to be. I am still young yet. And at the same time, I feel as if 
based on certain things I've learned this summer, that the dating game is going to be a long game for me. And of course, the film that we're talking about today brings us to this week's episode, which is called Adventures in Authenticity and Animation. And we will be getting into the nitty gritty of Bebe's Kids. But first, a little trust and believe. Welcome to Trust and Believe. So this is a segment that I do on the show where I put y'all on to a film that is not big in the general populace. This isn't a blockbuster film. This is usually an independent film or a foreign film. Something that I'm asking you to trust and believe me on if you haven't heard of it. And this week's Trust and Believe is a film called Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, directed by Amir Khalib Thompson, a.k.a. Quest Love and was released in 2021. So I talked about this film a little bit at some point when I was going down the list of Black films that were making a splash at Sundance this past year, and this was certainly one of them. This is a documentary that tells the story of the Harlem Cultural Festival, which took place in 1969. This incredible, incredible, incredible event features the musical genius talents, titans such as Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, The Staple Singers, The Fifth Dimension, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Mahalia Jackson, and so many more. Though there was lots of footage taken out of the festival, and I mean like lots of footage, I think the whole thing was taped on video. This footage was shelved and stored in a basement for 50 years. And this is also the same summer that Woodstock happened. So Woodstock way overshadowed this event in terms of pop culture, in terms of being known as a part of history. And this documentary that Questlove directed finally brings us the footage that has been restored and immerses us in the beauty, love, and extreme talent that was involved in this festival. Now, to say that the footage that was found and put together is gorgeous is kind of an understatement. Like, I could honestly have watched an entire limited series, like weeks of this shit, if they had put it on TV or HBO or something like that. But I think what's also useful here that Questlove puts in is these talking heads. And talking heads is a term that we use in the world of film when we are talking about documentaries that have interviews in them, first-person interviews in which they are talking to the camera. This is a formalistic way of approaching documentaries. Not all documentaries are like this, but this is a bit of a half and half, I would say. And some of the talking heads don't necessarily work very well, like Lin-Manuel Miranda gives his couple sense about Afro-Latin music, which is featured in the festival and is gorgeous, but I don't really think his opinion is necessarily needed in this. But what is great and beautiful is to see first-person interviews in the present with Gladys Knight, with Mavis Staples, hearing her experience, and watching The Fifth Dimension watch their performance is just 
oh my God, it is beyond moving. So this kind of balance that Questlove is striking between these interviews and this amazing footage is just absolutely beautiful. And also, Questlove is a big fan of Nighthawk, which is the theater that I work at, that I program at. And Nighthawk is thanked in the special thanks for the credits of this film. So big ups to us. And Questlove, we love you, of course. And, you know, this film, I think, is going to continue to be a big deal. It did win the Audience Award and the Grand Jury Prize for Documentary Film at Sundance this past year. So I hope the love continues to just be rubbed upon this film because it's very, very good. And if you haven't seen Summer of Soul yet... It is available to watch on Hulu, and it will be on Hulu forever, so check it out. It's a great film to close out this summer, and a great black film from this past summer. So, stay tuned after this little ad break, and we will be getting into the nitty-gritty of Bebe's Kids. So let's get into the nitty gritty of Bebe's Kids. You are here for one reason, one reason only, to learn, to learn, to learn. So Bebe's Kids was released in 1992, almost 30 years ago, which is crazy. And here's a little summary of the film if you haven't seen it. This film is based on the late, great, so great, comedian Robin Harris's stand-up set. And this film tells the story of Robin, voiced by Faison Love, because though we do see footage of Robin Harris in the beginning of the film, he was not alive at the time to voice the character in the film. And Robin meets a woman named Jamika, played by Vanessa Bell Calloway, and he is instantly smitten with her. Robin has no problem at all with the fact that Jamika has a kid named Leon, who is voiced by Wayne Collins Jr. In fact, it actually gives him an idea to take them to an amusement park called Fun World so that he can show Jamika how good he is with kids and, like, mack it up with her at the same time. But what he does not expect to see when he picks up Jamika and Leon the next day are three more kids that are with Jamika. Their names are Khalil, LaShawn, and Pee Wee the OG, and they are Bebe's kids. Jamika babysits her friend Bebe's kids from time to time, and today is one of those times. These kids have a reputation that precedes them as they wreak havoc everywhere they go. So, this film also features the voices of Marquise Houston as Khalil, Jonal Green as LaShawn, and Tone Loke, a.k.a. The Rapper. You may know him from Funky Cold Medina. So I got up and strolled over to the other side of the cantina. I asked the guy, why are you so fly? He said, Funky Cold Medina. And from Ace Ventura Pet Detective, he plays Pee Wee the OG, who is 
the baby of the family. And of course, when we're talking Marquise Houston, we're talking Roger from Sister Sister. We're talking Marquise Houston of later musical fame. This film also features the voices of Nell Carter, Louis Anderson, who is also a famous voice actor, John Witherspoon, who has also passed on at this point and very sad to see go, and also George Wallace. So... Some fun facts about this film. In Robin Harris's original stand-up act, Bebe had four kids, which seems... Oh, my God. ...even more terrifying to me. Three kids that you don't know of is one thing. It seems to be unmanageable, correct? But imagine fucking four. Like, I cannot even fathom how much more insane it was just by adding one more child to the equation. Also, in the original stand-up act, they went to Disneyland, which of course would have been a major problem, this being an animated film, this being a non-Disney film. They would have gotten sued immediately if they went to Disneyland in this film. So, of course, they turned it to something that was generic, like Fun World. And last but not least, in the stand-up act, Robin is forced to take the kids to Las Vegas at gunpoint, which is insane to me because the way that these kids are depicted in the film is that, like, they're bad, they fuck shit up, and they absolutely wreak havoc. And at the same time, they have heart, and at the end of the day, they are kids. But the fact that these kids had a gun in real life, instead of just like in the movie, they kind of like trick him and they, you know, basically persuade him to get them to take him, to get him to take them to Vegas at the end of the film. Just imagining a gun involved just makes it so much more intense. Now, animation can do a lot. Animation can do a lot in terms of softening certain things, but these kids holding a gun up to this man's head, I think would have taken it uh, over the edge. But now this makes me want to go and look up Robin Harris's original stand-up act of talking about Bebe's kids. She told me, she, told me, she said, if you want to get acquainted with me and my son, you'll have to take us to Disneyland. Ain't that a bitch. I went to pick up the next day, he should got four more kids. I says, uh, who kids are them? She said, those are baby kids. He said, where the fuck is baby? Baby went downtown. So why did she take her kids with her? Oh, don't worry about it. Baby left $10 to help get him in dinner. Ain't that a bitch? It was $200 trying to get them fuckers in Disneyland. And you know how kids act when they never been nowhere. You know how they act. We go into small, small world. They jump out the boat. I can hold a dick to my small world. Shit. Small world. We baby kids. We don't die. We multiply. They do show parts of it in the beginning, as I said before. And I want to see the whole thing. I want to see the rest of it. I want to see what other differences there are between what made it into the film and what actually happened to him in real life. Second fun fact is that this is the first fully animated film to be rated PG-13 by the MPAA. 
Now, there are other films that were partially animated that were PG-13. An example of that being Cool World, if you remember that film. Cool World also came out in 1992 and features, obviously, animation along with live action. And... Yeah, I think that's interesting that this was the first PG-13 animated film. And I, I mean, there were, there were a lot more after, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, but that makes this film monumental in a way that I don't think I had realized before. I know that when this film came out, it definitely shocked me a little bit to find out about it. I mean, I was fucking two when this came out, so I don't remember when it actually came out. But hearing about it later on, you know, hearing about any cartoon that had cursing or anything in it, at that time, to me, was like, what? What the fuck? So it's a pretty fucking monumental film. And that is one of the ways in which it is monumental. Third fun fact is that Bruce W. Smith, the director of this film, went on to create shows such as Happily Ever After, which was a great, great series that were black retellings of fairy tales that aired on HBO and HBO Family. Wonderful show. Definitely seek that out if you have not. It should be on HBO Max and HBO streaming, and if it's not, I'm going to be upset because that show's gorgeous. And then also, Bruce W. Smith created The Proud Family. So if you see this film and the animation style looks very similar to something, it is most likely one of those two shows because those shows were great, monumental, and very specifically his animation style. So it's great to see that evolve and change and also really come through in a very big way in this film. So, 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 my first experience with this film. You know, I feel like I said this before, my mom was really not a fan of anything that had crude, cruel, or mean kids in it. She didn't let us watch The Simpsons because she was like, it's about this rude ass little boy that gets away with shit. She did not say all these curses because as I said before, my mom doesn't curse a lot, but this is me translating into what she was saying. She even didn't really fuck with Home Alone and Home Alone 2 that much, but she still let us watch it. Sometimes she would definitely restrict how much we could watch it. Because again, it's a kid doing bad shit and she didn't want us to look at these kids and take them as an example of how to act in the world. So obviously, this was no exception. I mean, this was like the movie about rude ass kids. And on top of it, they're black. So for us to see this as an example, I think would have been quite the no-no for her. But I did end up seeing it at a friend's house at some point when I was in elementary school. And it really, really felt like I was getting away with something. Like I was committing 
a low-key crime, and it felt really, really great, gotta say, uh, to break a little rule and to be able to see this movie that had such a reputation like all the kids had seen Bebe's Kids. There is also a really famous story in my family in which my mom apparently had not heard about this movie when it came out, even though it was quite popular. And her sister, my Aunt Bonnie, may she rest in peace, had definitely heard about this movie, no doubt because she was a teacher and also she had a son that was older than us. So when my mom mentioned that she had not heard of this movie, my aunt apparently kept repeating, Baby's kids. You don't know about Bebe's Kids? You ain't never heard of Bebe's Kids? And she apparently just kept going on and on and on about it. And this is one of my dad's favorite stories to tell. Many times when we are discussing Aunt Bonnie and favorite moments, this story will come up. And I always think of it every single time that I think of this movie, that I see this movie. So rest in peace, Aunt Bonnie. I love that your humor and stories about you come through in various ways, including this film. So let's get into these themes of authenticity and animation. Okay, so immediately as the film starts, you are absolutely dropped in and immersed into a world that feels authentically Black. I mean, first of all, the design, that is just something that you can't really fake. You know what I mean? That is something that comes from your experience and how you would like to represent your experience through this medium of animation. I mean, the way the folks talk to him at the bar is another way that it feels very, very authentic to our experience. I mean, that dialogue, again, this is something that you can't really fake, even if you're told or if you are a consultant, like you can't get this authenticity by being a consultant on a project or being a co-director of a project. It really has to be a Black production. And, you know, that really is such a big importance in terms of telling our stories in general. And I really appreciate that this film exists to really give us that in animation, in a featured film. I mean, the way that everyone is talking shit at this funeral that... Robin goes to in the beginning and meets Jamika is just absolutely incredible. And I mean, it didn't surprise me to see that John Witherspoon was part of the cast. I mean, there's that part where Robin is just playing cards with the dudes in the back at this funeral. They're just cutting it up. They're drinking, they're playing cards and they're talking about Jamika and they're just ratting on each other. And it just feels heartwarming in a way to see your experience represented so authentically in this beautiful medium, like I said before. And even the way that the houses are designed too, you know, I don't think it's any mistake or coincidence that Reginald Hudland was involved with this film as well as House Party. There is something that feels intrinsically linked to their design that really does drop you into Black LA at that time in a very, very cool way. Um, even the way 
that Jamaica is designed almost does remind me of Tisha Campbell in a way. It's really, really, really interesting. And another thing in the dialogue that just, oh my gosh, just rings so, so, so authentically true is the section with the Yo Mama jokes. So you already know, if you were black in the 90s, the 1990s, you know that Yo Mama jokes ran the world, okay? I think that there was no better slam dunk on somebody than Yo Mama jokes. Uh, They were just, they hold a really special place in my heart. And it's even funny when you are doing a yo mama joke to someone that you share a mother with. That shit is funny to me. And yo mama's mama jokes are also just incredible. I think my favorite one in this movie is when Robin's ex-wife happens to be at Fun World with her friend on the same day that Robin takes Jamaica and all the kids. So, of course, the ex-wife wants to sabotage. I wonder if she's a Scorpio like me. But she wants to sabotage, and Robin's best way of defense, and is an excellent defense that ends up working, is Yo Mama jokes to this woman. And I think my favorite one that he throws out is that, that look, your mom's so dumb, they told her it was chilly outside, she wouldn't got a bowl. <laughs> you ready to go, baby. Again, this is just a really beautiful thing to see, and I wish that we got to see more of it. Thank God the director was able to create shows like Happily Ever After and The Proud Family so that though we didn't necessarily get it in feature film, medium, and theaters all the time, we did continue to get it on TV. And I'm excited to see The Proud Family come back because it's a beautiful show and it's needed. So, and there's also, in terms of authenticity, there is such an authenticity in how the kids are dealt with by authority figures and adults in general. And this kind of goes into two sides, right? It's not just the white authority figures who are these security guards, these FBI-like security guards that work at Fun World, but it's also how Black adults deal with the kids as well. So obviously, on the white side of the equation with these security guards who are constantly chasing the kids, they're looking at the kids on surveillance cameras. The second the kids get there, these white authority figures are on their asses. And do they fuck with shit? Yes, of course, but essentially I feel like what this represents is the fact that there are always these authority figures, these white authority figures, whether they be cops, whether they're teachers, they're always trying to put black kids down. They're always trying to stop black kids from having fun and actually being fucking kids. There is another section in this film in which the kids basically go on trial, uh, they hijack some ride, some kitty kid ride, and they end up going into this toy shop with a lot of robots. And they go in and fuck shit up, and they start a rebellion of all these other kids on the grounds of the amusement park. And they also get Leon to do some bad shit too, which is fun to see. And so 
Leon knocks over a bunch of boxes and kills, quote unquote, kills one of the robots. And then the kids all get taken by these other robots and they're put on trial for killing the robot. At first, I thought this scene was a bit absurd. Even though this is an animation, everything so far has been like fairly grounded outside of the usual like cartoon hijinks, you know? So when this trial starts happening and Abraham Lincoln is defending them and uh, I forget who is, oh, I think Nixon is against them or something, uh, the prosecuting lawyer. Uh, so at first when I thought this was absurd, but then after I really thought about it, I was like, you know what? This does absolutely represent how black kids are tried like adults in this world at every step of the way. Like when a black kid does something, they are treated to the highest extent of the law and oftentimes get shot. When a white kid does something, like when a white kid shoots up a fucking school, they get taken to a fast food joint. Like it is so, so different. Like, a white child's actions will be treated like they are the actions of a child. And that's not the same for black kids. So I think that is kind of what this scene was getting at through the medium of animation, just showing something that's very real and a very hard thing to grapple with and handle and truly showing it in a very creative way. And I mean, that shit is just real as fuck. And it also goes into the way that Robin relates to the kids. And that kind of represents how sometimes, obviously the treatment of how white authority figures treat black kids and how black authority figures treat black kids is different. There is kind of another specific way in which black authority figures can also judge children who come from this background that Bebe's kids do come from. So Robin's whole view on them is that they're just really badass kids and they really don't deserve much of anything that's happening to them today. Though he does eventually warm up to them and gain empathy through seeing what their situation really is and how absent their mother really is. And I think that that is also a nuance and a difference that this film shows and shows with authenticity from a Black point of view is that though there may initially be some judgment from someone who has never been a part of that situation or has never seen that situation with empathy, that... That empathy is very easy for us to access. Very easy for us to access. I think even as Black viewers, sometimes we would judge these kids to a certain extent from the outside. And then when we really learn about their situation, we gain empathy. That doesn't happen with white people. So again, just specifics and the importance of having a black voice behind this is just of the 
utmost importance. And in terms of genre films, we're talking about, of course, animation and comedy, which we have here in this film. And we're also talking horror. We're talking action adventure. We're talking sci-fi. Just like any other kind of genre piece to really explore these human issues, these tough issues that these kids are going through and that the adults are going through, actually. You know, being the child of a single parent, I have never heard any of my friends who have experienced that say that it was a fucking walk in the park. It was easy. It was it was it was a piece of cake, especially if they are black or mixed race. It's just not an easy thing. And I love the way that this film really shows that in an honest way and does it in a way through animation that makes it more palatable, I would say. Not to say that anyone is in this situation in real life. It's not a palatable situation. It's just that you are able to absorb the messages and the tough things. And I think honestly have more empathy when these tough issues are represented in the way of genre, in comedy, in horror. You can kind of understand a film about grief, for example, that is a horror film, rather than just watching a really sad, dramatic fucking movie that's about grief and how people handle it. I think when you see something that way that's kind of so aggressively on the nose and on the head like that, then you put some distance between yourself and the content, where I think this way really brings you a lot closer to these characters and to the situations that they're going through. My mom has told me many, many, many stories about kids that have had behavioral issues in schools that she's worked at. I mean, she's worked at high schools, middle schools, elementary schools. She has seen it all. And just hearing about the ways in which she worked to understand them is very important. And something that Robin afterwards represents to them. And I think Jamika does as well. Though Jamika does have, you know, her own judgments, she seems to really understand them throughout the whole film. And it really makes me think of just all these situations that I've heard of from my mom and just the work that is needed in these schools and in these environments and just in kids' lives to make sure that they're fucking okay, you know? I think to dispel kids and kind of take them out of the equation because they have quote-unquote behavioral issues is just way too common. It's just way too common. Are there ones that are really bad? Like, these kids in real life holding a gun to this man's head and, you know, forcing him to take them to Las Vegas is scary, indeed, yes. Um, and, you know, something else that this film represents authentically through the animation is how having kids in a relationship does take it to a new level. I, at some point, was seeing a man, I went on a couple of dates with this guy who had an eight-year-old son. And at the time, because let me tell you, this is one of the finest men that I have ever been with, period. I was willing to let it happen. And when he dropped it, I was kind of grateful because at the end of the day, I was like, I don't know what to 
do with no damn eight-year-old kid? Like, I just don't know what to do who also has another father and it's like a divorce thing and it's like, that would have been too, too much for me. So to see Robin so eager to show Jamika that he is good with kids or with her kid, with Leon, is a really nice thing to see and I don't think that's even something that you see a whole lot in... Black representation, Black media, especially pre early 90s and pre that. And I think that's a dope, dope thing. I mean, being in a relationship when you're older is also something that is dealt with a sense of reality here, you know, because it's not just the kids that Robin is dealing with. It's his ex-wife and her friend as well. So it just adds a lot of chaos sometimes to the mixture. And something else that this film made me think of in relation to Leon, who is Jamika's son, is how when you're a good kid, kind of on the outside and seeing... Kids do quote-unquote bad things and kind of being shat on a little bit for being a good kid, you do kind of want to escape that mold, you know? I think Leon represents a good way to be a balance, you know? You don't have to go as far as Bebe's kids do at all times. And at the same time, you don't want to keep it so safe, You know, one little flag that I do have in this movie, which also just reads really true for how I was treated in in the 90s, is that Robin at some point describes that he is concerned that Leon may be a bit soft because he wants to be around his mom a lot. And, you know, that is also something that is real in here. You know, when you are even not in a single parent home, if you are a boy that gravitates more toward your mom you kind, you, not kind of, you really do get labeled in some way. And I'm glad that that's something that is touched on on, in this film and something that isn't necessarily bought up again and something that is not like a running theme of Robin just calling him soft because just because you want to be around your mom doesn't make you quote-unquote soft. Just because you're quote-unquote soft doesn't mean you're fucking badass. And just because you're quote-unquote soft doesn't mean anything negative, you know? And it's cool to see Leon be inspired by Bebe's kids to kind of start living his life. And you know what? Maybe Bebe's kids inspire me to live my life a little bit more too. So I think that's just a really cool thing about this movie. So in conclusion, this is one of, if not the only, Black American animated feature film made by Black people, which is fucking crazy. It is absolutely bananas. I look forward to another one happening at some point, But as I think I've said before, Soul was co-directed by a Black person, not solely directed by a Black person, not solely written by Black people. And same goes for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. You know, that was directed by two white dudes. We love these movies. They're both really good. And also at the same time, you can't say that they have the same amount of that authenticity that we were talking about. You know, they both do a really good job at it, but this is just hitting at a different level. And if you know, you know. And that's it. 
And honestly, if there are others, please let me know. Like, please comment on the Instagram post if there are others that I should know about. Please, please, please. I think this is such an engaging way to talk about our experiences through animation, and it allows the viewer to really listen and take in the character's circumstances with more empathy and perhaps less immediate judgment. This film was not well received critically, and I think that is because, like many other films that are not received well critically, Straight white male critics can easily miss the point when the film is not for them. So this is definitely a black classic. It is a classic. It is short. It is funny. And by the end, dare I say, even moving. This film is now available to stream on Amazon Prime Video and Paramount Plus. And right after this little ad break, we will get into this week's You Better Act Award. All my life I hit a All right, welcome to the You Better Act Award, which, if you don't know, if it's your first time here at Adventures in Black Cinema, this is an award that I give out on the show every single week to a performance that I think deserves way more love, way more praise and attention, so I give it that on the show, and it is absolutely my pleasure to do so every single week. So, this week's You Better Act Award goes to, drumroll please... Titus Burgess in Respect. So Respect was released this year, this past summer. It was directed by Liesl Tommy. And you know, this may seem a bit odd to you if you've seen the biopic about Aretha Franklin, played by Jennifer Hudson, because Titus actually has a very small role in it. And he brings a lot to it in those few minutes that he's on screen. Titus plays James Cleveland, who was known as the King of Gospel. And in the film, he helps Aretha to truly believe in herself and her abilities again as she prepares to perform the now infamous Amazing Grace concert. You know, You Better Act, when I started doing it on Instagram as an Instagram series, it started because of roles like this. You know, smaller roles that make a big impact because of the choices that the actors make are so incredibly special. And I think that that is what separates actors from performers. People who really channel somebody, they channel an energy, and they do it instantly, and they do it in a way that fits the medium of film, which is visually. And Titus, who is known for being big, loud, and brassy in his roles in such shows as 30 Rock and Kimmy Schmidt, brings actually an incredible softness to this role, as well as a quiet strength and his absolutely gorgeous, beautiful singing voice. In a film where honestly, almost everyone is doing too much acting wise, like doing way too much, he brings the perfect, perfect amount. Respect is now in theaters, and it's also available to rent on Amazon Cinema. So, in closing, some food for thought. 
What were some of your favorite Black films from this past summer? We've talked about a lot of them in various ways on this episode, and then also in the last episode when I talked about Zola. So what were some of your favorites? Comment on our Instagram and follow us on Instagram at Adventures in Black Cinema. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple. Follow the podcast on Spotify. And thank you per usual to the team. We have Cindy Edward, our production assistant. We have Matt mozzarella on the audio and we have amanda seals our executive producer so because of my new work schedule the show will become bi-weekly so that i can do both my job and this show both things that i love and also have time for myself to do some other things so we will be back on september 28th with Barbershop. Very excited to get into that film. And until then, stay safe, stay black, and stay blessed. Bye. Great.